Welcome back to the Practice of Being Seen podcast, episode number 29. Today's show is brought to you by Medify, a self-awareness app created by therapists that will help you be your best self. Download it for free today on both Apple and Android devices. The Practice of Being Seen is about understanding who you really are and daring to share your truth with the world. This is a conversation with and for seekers, creators, and holders of transformation. We believe that stories shape relationships and relationships shape stories. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and founder of Connectfulness. I'm joined by my co-host, Marisa Gowdy, writer and storytelling coach for healers. This is the practice of being seen. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, the show. Today, we're lucky enough to have Janice Levy with us. Janice is a professor in the Department of Media, Arts, Sciences, and Studies in the Roy H. Park School of Communications at Ithaca College. An acclaimed photographer, Janice's work has been exhibited nationally and internationally in museums and galleries, including Cornell University and the Museum of Antigua and Barbuda. Her photographs and writing have been widely published in textbooks, magazines, and online. Among her many awards, Janice won first place in the 2016 International Photography Awards Family of Man competition in the marriage category. And she also won first place in the prestigious 2013 photo review competition for her photographs of Saudi Arabia. And 20 years ago, Janice was one of my professors and advisors at Ithaca College. And so it is with great pleasure that we welcome you today, Janice. Hello and welcome. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here and so glad that you thought of me. You've been doing such wonderful things, you know, helping people, connecting people, you know, doing all of that stuff. Hats off to you, really. It's not easy to do that. No, it's, it really you know, isn't. it's interesting, though, because I often look back at my days at Ithaca College and all of the artwork and the film and the photography that I did back then. And I feel like a lot of that was a preparation for me to do the work I do now. Well, you know, it's interesting how photographs and film can do that. You know, I spent a year in Saudi Arabia as a sabbatical, and I had the opportunity to, I was invited actually to teach photography at an all-women's university there, Princess Nora bint Abdulram University. And I took the opportunity, and it was really a life-changing experience for me, but I'll just skip to what happened afterwards quickly to feed into what you had just said. And when I came back, I started to look through old photographs as a way of trying to connect my experience in Saudi Arabia with what might have happened as a child that would have led me to accept that invitation. You know, how did I get there? And, you know, I think that sometimes we look at our historical past to try and figure out what were the relationships that you could see in those old photographs? How could you sort of connect your history with where you are now? You know, if, if you learn how to read those images, which is, of course, what it is that you learn when you're studying film and photography, you know, what are the messages that you can see in the way people stand in photographs and the expressions that they give and the body language and all, you know, where does that take you? How do you put together those pieces? And oftentimes, particularly after a traumatic event, 
or if you're searching for something, you look at those old pictures and you say, okay, what was it in the way my mother and father interacted in those old pictures that could lead to, you know, either their breakup or their happy marriage or, you know, how did I stand with my sister that can give me some information about our relationship now? And it's really fascinating. Yeah. You know, I think of that so often in my work, you know, when I'm sitting with couples, when I'm sitting with individuals, I'm always picking apart little things that I'm noticing in their body language. And it totally goes back to the photography classes I remember taking with you and just like how people stand and what it means. And each little shift of weight has meaning. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so interesting to me because I have students, Ithaca College accommodates a lot of students with disabilities. And I've had over the years students that are on the spectrum and they will come to me after the first few classes and they'll say things like, you know, I can't really read somebody's expression. So, you know, when you say, for instance, that you'll have to, you know, take a portrait of somebody and interpret what they're feeling or thinking by looking at the expression on their face, they'll say to me, well, you know, I can't do that. And it's so fascinating to me to try and talk to them about other things that they could do to make images that'll, you know, either formally or in some other way communicate something that they can't do because they can't recognize the expression on someone's face as being indicative of a a certain feeling. But it always takes me back because, you know, I rely so much on things like body language and facial expression in my work to communicate things. So is it okay with you if we dive in a little bit? Yeah, go ahead. Dive away. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh (laughs) So, you know, you briefly mentioned your own dive into looking at your family photos. I'm curious what's come out of that for you. Well, a lot, actually. You know, I mentioned I, I spent a year in Saudi Arabia, which was probably one of the most difficult experiences of my life and probably one of the most fulfilling in a lot of ways. Maybe um, we should slow down and give you a chance to tell us about that as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was in 2010, 2011, and it was actually my second trip to Saudi Arabia. The first one was in January of 2010, and it was a brief like two-week consulting job where I spoke to deans and chairs about leadership. And while I was there, I found out that the college or the university was looking for a photographer to teach for the following year in their new College of Art and Design. And I had a sabbatical coming up, so I thought, wow, you know, why not? I mean, it was an amazing opportunity. And I had been treated very well during the workshop, and I thought that people had a lot of misperceptions about Saudi Arabia based on how I'd been treated in my two weeks there, so I went for it. And I thought, you know, it would be a really good opportunity to understand more about that part of the world and also to work with young Saudi women and give them a vehicle for exploring their world and communicating through images, which is how I always used photography, you know, yeah. as sort of, or, you know, a reason to be there. You know, I used to say to people, my students, that, for instance, you wouldn't knock on someone's door just randomly and say, hi, you know, I'd like to come in and learn all the intimate details of your life because you'd get the door slammed in your face. <laughs> but, you know, if you knocked on someone's door and said, you know, I'm a photographer and I'm photographing everybody who lives on Main Street, you know, can I come in and take your picture? Chances are that they would say sure, and in the course of the time that you spent with them, they would tell you all the intimate details of their life, which to me was the interesting part. But I thought that, wow, Saudi Arabia, you know, here is a very new medium in that country, 
there was a law against photographing in public places until 2006 in that country. And I thought this would be, you know, to be the first person to teach photography in a public university in that country would be something, you know, really interesting. So anyway, I went and what I found was something very different than what I had experienced during the two weeks that I was there. And that was that, you know, I was living basically on the economy, as they say, and I was not in a sheltered compound like most foreigners are, you know. So I was living basically in one little room surrounded by men. It was more or less a pretty uncomfortable environment for me. And the teaching itself was really fascinating. My students didn't speak English very well, so I did this kind of pantomime for six hours a day. But what it did was it sort of challenged everything that I ever believed in, in terms of, you know, taking for granted freedoms that we have here, freedom of speech, freedom of movement. Women aren't treated very well in Saudi Arabia. I lived in a kind of, in order to survive, I dissociated pretty much for the entire time that I was there. I felt like I was in danger. You know, first of all, I'm a Jew and I kept that hidden because there is this hostility towards Israel, which translates to hostility towards Jews. And there was this feeling that I had all the time that if I were discovered, that my life would be in danger. And that wasn't just a feeling, it was actually true, you know, because comments, for instance, um, one day I was in class and I had shown a photograph of a Nazi soldier that August Sander had taken. And I was talking about portraiture and one of my students said, what's a Nazi? And another said, oh, like a Nazi, like Hitler, who was a really good man because he solved a very big problem. And, you know, I just sort of stepped off the podium and said, do you think that killing millions of people because they believe something different from you is a good way to solve a problem. And, you know, we talked about it. So I was very honest with my students, but they had been educated in a certain way. You were opening dialogues, though. You were building bridges. I was. And, you know, the thing that was so amazing to me was that in the end, the students said to me, you know, you not only taught us about photography, you taught us about life. And to me, that's why photography is such a powerful medium and such a powerful tool because, you know, photography isn't just about taking pictures. It's about exploring life. And I've always felt that photography is the vehicle for understanding life. And, you know, the taking pictures part is, to me, you know, it's almost like a really small part of it. You know, it's the excuse to explore. It's the excuse to think. It's the excuse to be certain places. And in a funny kind of way, if I look at my whole career, the actual physical photograph for me, the artifact, has been far less important than the experience that has produced that artifact. You know, the artifact is the validation in a way that I was there and I can look at the picture and I can say, right, that sort of validates the way I think or that's the reminder or that, you know, it's the memory jolt or whatever. It reminds me of that whole idea of you have to live the story before you can tell it. Exactly. And and emphasizing that living part is what really opens up the story you're telling, the end product, what someone's eventually going to be absorbing and taking into their own lives. 
Yeah, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because here's the thing that concerns me most about what's going on in education now and going on with my students. You know, I've been teaching for 30 years and what I see now in our students, and I've seen it now for the past few years, is this fear of living. And, you know, it's actually a fear of everything, but I think, you know, now that you put it that way, I think it's just a fear of living. You know, they are fearful of every experience. They're fearful basically of doing what they would describe as the wrong thing. And I say to them, you know, it's like, what is the wrong thing? You know, what is it that you're so afraid of? And I think in part it has to do with their education, you know, the sort of teach to the test thing where there is only one right answer. And, you know, if they don't give the right answer, then somehow they're punished in some way. I don't know. I mean, I'll tell you right off, I don't have children. I've never had any of my own. But they seem to have this, you know, I will confront them and I'll say, you know, what is it that you're so afraid of? And they can't even answer that question, but they'll say, we don't want to do the wrong thing. And so they don't experiment. I mean, I recall when I was in college and afterwards, I was willing to try anything. You know, even if I thought that, I mean, first of all, I never thought that I couldn't do it. I mean, even if I had never done it before, my approach was, you know, how hard can it be? (laughs) You know, other people do. And it's not that I ever thought I was so brilliant because I didn't, you know, which is another thing that we can go into. But I always thought, like, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is that it won't work. And then I'll either figure out how to make it work or I'll go on to something else. But students these days don't have that attitude. They only want to take the safe route. And I think, you know, know, I'm guessing in many ways that the students that you're seeing in this evolution over the past 30 years that you've seen progress to this point is kind of like a microcosm of what we're seeing in society at large. Yeah, I think it is. And so when you say you have to live the story to tell the story... It's like, what is the story that they're going to live? You know, what stories are they going to tell? You know, I think that I have had, you know, good and bad experiences. And I've always learned from them and even the worst of them. And I will tell you that Saudi Arabia in many ways was, and I don't want to say it was the worst of my experiences, but it's the one that I emerged from the most, and I don't, and again, I don't want to say damaged, but it has taken me years to recover from that. And I'm not fully recovered yet. And I tell people that what happened was that when I came back, I had to, like, my DNA had completely, like, split apart. And I had to sort of reconfigure my DNA. I mean, I had been so shocked by the experience, by what I had seen, the sort of the hatred, the xenophobia, just the sort of the fear also, the inability to think critically, the acceptance of what somebody said just because that person said it, you know, the non-questioning, the kinds of things, by the way, that I see going on in our culture today. And that's why it scares me so much that it took me at least two years to sort of come out of the place that I was in when I came back. And that surprised me because I often thought that, you know, I could throw anything at me, I can handle it. That was something that I couldn't totally handle and didn't realize it at the time. You know, what's interesting is you're talking about this kind of deep inwardness, this fear, this inability to feel like they could ever be wrong. And that's coming at the same time as we're seeing this huge democratization of 
an ability to take images because we all have cameras in our phones and we have information everywhere and that there's this rush of what seems like it should be so empowering and in fact it's deeply disempowering and that's such exactly. a paradox yeah it's very interesting because in a funny kind of way and i saw that the democratizing effect of photography and certainly in the sort of arab spring in terms of its ability to communicate. I was over in Saudi Arabia when the Arab Spring happened, and I saw it also in an interesting way when I went to Guatemala in 2000, oh gosh, 13 was it, to relearn Spanish so I could give the keynote address in Spanish in Panama for an organization. <laughs> That's another long story that I'll tell you about. But, um, <laughs> but one of the things that was interesting was that when I had been in Guatemala in 1991, you couldn't take photographs of anyone because they were all saying, you know, give me money in exchange for taking a picture. And when I went down there this time, many years later, nobody cared if you took their picture. And the reason was that everyone had a cell phone. So like a photograph wasn't a commodity anymore. And so it didn't matter if you took their picture because they could take their own picture. Yeah. I'm curious because, you know, when I was in school with you, we were still in dark rooms. We were still yeah. developing film. Everything was still really, really tangible. And since I have left photography school, I've not picked up a camera. I've not put a roll of film in a camera in God knows how long. Mm. You know, and there was so much intent behind everything. Like, we were using four by five negatives. Like, everything right. was... Close it down. Yeah, it slows you down. It makes you really, really plan and think about every little detail and see things on a deep level. Yeah, but this is why I think, and I want to get back to the whole disempowering thing about taking pictures all the time, but because I think that what it's done is, and I hate to use these sort of pat phrases, but it's created a culture of narcissism that is so despicable. You know, I think what it's done is it has created this sort of superficiality about photographs. I mean, I think in some ways it has empowered people because people who wouldn't have access to making pictures before now do, and they can instantly put them on the web and people can see things that they never did before. And in a lot of ways, I think it's good, but I think what's happened is that it's sort of cheapened the image also in a lot of ways, because what you said, it's like when there was film, it sort of made photography a little bit elitist in a way, because you had to have a, a significant amount of money, first of all, mm -hmm. to have a camera, to be able to purchase film, to have it processed. You had to have certain facilities in order to make the prints or enough money to have somebody else do it. I just have to break in for a moment. As I was researching your work before our call, I was looking through some of the pictures you'd won awards for. And I was looking at the International Photography Awards. And I was like, Rebecca, stop. I have to look at these for a second. And I'm like, can you look at these with me? She's like, no, I'm working. But it was that oh, moment. Thank you. You're welcome. And it was just that moment of saying, well, these are different than what I see every day in my Instagram feed. And there is that mm. moment we can still, I hope, create that space and say, this was created with a different level of intention and seeing than the rest of us mere mortals have access to in that moment of taking a snapshot. Yeah, I would like to think that my vision is different, but it's so hard these days because, you know, if you look at, you know, IPA and some of the other sites, you know, there are so many amazing photographers out there now. You know, it's not like it was in the 50s or 60s. You know, there are some incredibly talented people 
doing amazing things. And, you know, I'd like to think that my vision is different. But that's why, you know, in a funny kind of way, it's really nice if I can stick with this idea that it's not the destination, it's the journey. Because if I was really, really preoccupied with the final product and being recognized by the Museum of Modern Art for my photographs, then I'd be really depressed. But I will tell you, this is sort of interesting. As I get older, you know, I'm at a point now where I'm sort of looking back on all my work. I'm not running around as much as I used to. And at a point where I'm putting it all together and I'm thinking, you know, now's the time to really get this stuff out and try and get some recognition for all of the pictures I've been taking my whole life. So maybe that'll change. <laughs> but it's also like what I'm hearing, even in that statement, is it's my whole life, right? It's, it's like it's the culmination, it's the curation of all of the experiences that you've had. It's yeah. not any one experience. It's a longer game. Well, it is. And that's the interesting thing about getting to be, you know, I turned 60 this year and I don't really pay too much attention to age. And that's because, you know, when you're a college professor, it's like your kids never grow up. You know, they're always 18 to 21. It's if you're a real parent, you sort of get to age because you see your kids growing up and you think, oh, my God, if my kid just turned, you know, 30, then I must be at least 50 or 60 or whatever. But because my kids never grow up, I always think that I'm 35. Right. So um, you are, you know, and if my. <laughs> but if, you know, if my health stays pretty good, then, you know, I can stay 35 forever. But you do get to a point where you start to think, you know, it, you just see that the pile of negatives or the number of external hard drives increase. And you think, my God, I have all this work. And it's time to sort of look at the trajectory that it's taken. But also something very interesting happened in 2014. My father died. And he was 90 years old. And what we found after he died in his garage was thousands of negatives and a lot of documents. And he had never told me about all of this work that he did, because basically most of the work that he did was top secret. And he had taken an amazing number of pictures when he was in the war in China, Burma, and India from 1944 to 1947. And the work was just amazing. And it was taken with a square format camera. And the pictures are just phenomenal. I mean, I think he's a better photographer or was a better photographer than I am. And so, first of all, I was incredibly angry after he died. I mean, so angry because he had never told me about these photographs. And when I got to, I mean, I've scanned all of them now, all of the World War II photographs, and I'm scanning the stuff that came afterwards. And I put together a book of these images, and I'm going to start sending it out to see if I can get it published. It's called Over the Hump. But what I found was, like I said, I was so angry. But as I delved deeper into the documents, I found out that he was a major advisor to all of the presidents, but mainly to JFK, John F. Kennedy. And he worked for NASA and for the CIA. And so he couldn't really talk about any of his work. What was that and, like for you? I mean, you said you were angry, but like to... Oh, my God. To discover all these pieces of, you know, this man who he was your father, how much more intimate can a relationship get, right? Well, yeah, but, you know, it's interesting because I realized that the whole thing is so interesting. And again, you know, I feel like just as I start to try and recover from one experience, I get hit with another one. This one was very difficult for me, but sort of ironic because, you know, my whole life I've dealt with illusion. I mean, photographs are illusion. You know, you're really creating something that in a sense 
is based on some sort of fantasy. I mean, even if you're a documentary photographer, and I sort of consider myself in that mode, but you're still, you know, still the image that you create is based on your perspective and what you were feeling and thinking at the time and your interpretation of a particular situation. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is illusion, right? So here I am in the business of creating illusions, you know, and my father was also an illusion, you know, because he wasn't the man that he pretended to be, you know, conversations with him were like, oh, nice corn, where'd you get it? You know, and oh, my steak is really good, you know, that kind of stuff, because he couldn't talk about anything else. And I always suspected, you know, when I was a kid, that something was up because, you know, I was a very perceptive child. And we did spend our early years in Paris, he was a minister of defense to NATO in the Kennedy administration and McNamara secretary to Europe in the Middle East. So I knew that he had some government work. But, you know, I had no idea, for instance, that he was, you know, a teller's right hand guy and that he had done all this work with the hydrogen bomb and that he was a big arms salesman and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I, I mean, I had no idea of the depth of the work that he had done. But here I am reading all these letters and that he had kept and he kept everything. He kept everything. And I'm thinking to myself and I'm looking at these photographs of these, you know, hydrogen bombs going off. And I'm feeling like, you know, it's like this man that I didn't know. And then I hear from my stepmother during a conversation that he thinks that my father for the past 30 years had thought that I had also been a spy of some sort. And then I'm really shocked because I'm thinking, oh, my God, for my for 30 years of my life, we've been doing these dance around each other, you know, like these conversations that we had when I would say, oh, I'm going to Guatemala. And he would say, why do you have to go to Guatemala? And I would say, I'm doing development work. And he would say, you know, why can't you go? And I realized that these conversations were this like sort of weird dance that we did and that we never really connected, you know, and then that really upset me because there was, again, this sort of illusionary kind of relationship. And it was just the whole thing just came crashing down on me. You know, so then what I decided to do was try and find him by following in his footsteps. And a couple of summers ago, I drove out to New Mexico and Nevada and I went to the Nevada testing site and I stood where he stood and I'm sorry if I get upset, and took pictures of where he had detonated those bombs. Oh, Janice. Yeah. And so now I'm putting together a book that I call Atomic Love Poem. Yeah. And it's going to juxtapose my photographs of these areas, which are still radioactive, you know, hardtack too, and places where he was, and pictures of us growing up, and, and there'll be like a juxtaposition of those images along with documents and other, you know, sort of, it's about America's love affair with the atomic bomb. Yeah. Oh, um, my. I'm excited yeah, to see so, that. Yeah, me too. I, it's, like, <laughs> it's hard to work on. Obviously, it's very personal, and it involves some of that looking back at those images that I looked at, you know, it's interesting because everything sort of comes together in strange ways. You know, when I got back from Saudi Arabia and I started to look at these family pictures, my parents divorced when I was 11. And so when I started to look at these pictures of us when we were kids and how we were always standing in a certain way, you know, who was close to my father and how my parents stood in these pictures and, you know, did it 
predict something in the future. And I mean, I was born in 57 and these pictures at the dining room table or at the Seder table or something when, you know, my father the next day run off, you know, to the Nevada testing site to blow up something else. You know, it's like, it makes me sick when I think of it. And also for him, it's sad because, you know, he never really was able to participate in our family life. You know, it's very complicated. And there were thousands of other men just like him. And I say men because they were mostly men. But so I have a lot of research to do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm talking too much. Oh, no, you're not. I think we're so drawn in. But I'm also struck in thinking that so many people, so many of us go through a very similar dance. It might not be on the same degree or the same level of not knowing the people that they have intimate relationships with, the people that they're close with. But that dance, that feeling of not really knowing, that's such a common experience. I think especially with relationship to your parents, because I think that parents don't, you know, again, and I don't know because I don't have a child, but I think parents hold back a little bit maybe with respect to their children. But I would encourage, you know, I talk to my students about this, about the discoveries I made with respect to my parents and in particular my father, because I share this work with them. And, you know, a lot of them say, well, you know, my father works for Raytheon or, and I say, hmm, <laughs> which is a big defense contractor. And, you know, I say, ask your parents about their work while you still can. And maybe they'll share it with you because finding out after they died is sometimes really difficult, you know? So I encourage them to do that. And this is bringing to mind for me that idea of protecting and what may be done theoretically. This is for your best interests. I'm protecting you. Just feeling there's a resonance in, help me understand how that comes into the act of taking photos and, and cataloging time. Protection. Where does that come into all this? How do you mean exactly? I'm not even sure. It's that element of, you know, thinking about the stories I know I don't know of my own father. I think there's that desire to protect my daughter from understanding, you know, potentially shadowy places or the worst of anyone that any father may not want to tell a daughter. Yeah. And where is that kind of photography? I think part of it is protecting, but I think some parents think their kids aren't interested, you know, but I think that protection is a big part of what's, I don't want to say ruined this generation, but I think that parents are overly protective of their kids. And, you know, I see that obviously with my students and the number of times they call their parents. And, you know, I think that that's a result of, you know, the 9-11, obviously, and also with that little boy, God, now I can't remember his name. Anyway, the little boy, he was six years old and he begged his parents to be able to walk to the bus or to school alone in New York City. And he was abducted and he became sort of the first big public abduction and he was killed. And his case was recently solved. Yes. Uh, After 18, 25 years, right? It was yeah, a long right. time. And, and yep. I think parents became much more careful about their kids after that. But I think the extent to which, and then there became the whole helicopter parents thing. But, you know, my parents were much more hands off. Although my father, interestingly enough, when I look back on it, was very, very protective of us. And I think it was because of the work that he did. You know, when other kids were allowed to walk around the neighborhood alone and stuff like that, we were not. And I now recognize the extent to which we were probably watched. There were people that came into my life that I now realize were probably planted there as a result of my father's work, ways in which I was watched throughout my college (gasps) years and after. You know, you start to put together your life in a very different way after you find out certain things. 
there's an interesting irony in being watched and then becoming a professional watcher and recorder of what goes by you. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole irony of it. And, you know, if I spend too much time thinking about it, I can really make myself crazy. And luckily, you know, it's sort of like, and this is hope for people later in life. I met this wonderful man a couple of years ago, and he really keeps me balanced. You know, we got married and we have this incredible life and he doesn't let me go to those really dark places too often, you know, <laughs> he keeps me focused on the day to day. And there's something, you know, to be said for that, because there's so many little dark places you can go to, you know, as you bring up your husband and you bring up this idea of marriage, I'm thinking about that photo that you won the award for and that oh, you marriage, won it for the, yeah. yeah. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that experience and recording in, was that in Madagascar? Oh yeah, Madagascar. Oh my God. I love Madagascar. I first went there in 19. Yeah. It's like mad about Madagascar. You know, it was one of those places. Were you first there in like 95 or something? No, much earlier than that. It was. 92, 91, 92. Yeah. 92. I went there in 92, 93, 94, 95, 96, and then 2001. And I had gotten this fellowship with the Kellogg Foundation, and it was a leadership development fellowship that lasted for three years, and I was teaching at the same time, but I got time off for that, and it allowed me to travel, and I was looking at issues of family planning in developing countries. And basically I did some globe spinning at that point. And I looked at the map and I said, Madagascar, wow, that looks pretty remote. And I found out that they had a population that had doubled since the French left. They were decolonized in about 1960. And so I went there. And the minute I stepped off the plane, I just had this feeling that I belonged there. And there was something about the quality of the light and the smell of the place. And it was just amazing. So I went back all of those years. And the first time I was there, I spent only three weeks there. And it was way too short a period of time. The place had no infrastructure. It took ages to get any place. And the people were so warm and welcoming. Like I fell in love. So the next year I went back and I spent three months there. And then I spent a sabbatical there and... I just kept going back. And then I took students there in 1994, I think. And then I headed up the School for International Training program there in 2001. The way that picture came about was that I became friends, obviously, with lots of people who lived there. And uh, one of them was a journalist. And that was his parents. And we went to lunch there one day and I wanted to take their portrait. And they got all dressed up for their portrait after lunch. And I saw that picture. And that was his parents. And I asked them to stand underneath it. And I took that picture. And the irony of submitting work in that category was that my this is my third marriage. I had two really disastrous ones before this. And I said to myself, after the second disastrous marriage, which fell apart right after I came back from Saudi Arabia, was that I said, oh my God, I will never do this again. This is like so not for me. And then of course I met my current husband and it was so clear that being with him was so perfect. You know, you say never, never, never. And then you meet somebody and it's like, oh my God, this is so right. <laughs> but yeah, so then when I submitted that in marriage, I thought how ironic that I would submit a photograph in the marriage category of all categories, the thing I disdain the most, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and here I am married again, so but never it sounds say never. Like, yes. You know, it's, sometimes we need to try things. 
multiple times to find the right fit. Right. As I say, three's the charm, you know, three never a, give up. You three's know? a pretty magical number. <laughs> yeah, it is, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Oh. Just, just, yeah, never give up. You know, my favorite saying is do one thing every day that scares you. Oh, I love Roosevelt. that. Yes. Yeah. And it's really funny because I've taught abroad a lot. And one of the places is in Antigua in the West Indies. And anyhow, I taught a group of students, Antiguan students, as part of this government project. I taught them photography. And there was one student in the class who was very, very shy, but very talented. And I said to her, I said to the whole class, I said, you know, do one thing every day. This scares you. And this was a number of years ago. And I just heard from her. And she sent me this email. And she's now studying in, get this, Siberia. And she's getting her baccalaureate. And she said, you know, I remember always that thing that you said, do one thing every day that scares you. And I decided to pursue my baccalaureate in Siberia. And some days I'm so shy and it's, it really scares me to get up and walk to class. But I remember that you said that. And so here I am and I'm going to get my degree and go back to Antigua. And I was so touched by that. You make an impact all the time. I remember, and I'll just get a little bit personal for a second, that I was going through a particularly rough time when I was in college. I had lost a few of my family members who were really, really important to me. And it was through our relationship, Janice, you were my advisor at the time, and through our relationship that you pushed me into seeking the exact support that I needed at the time. So I just want to kind of reflect that back. And I'm pretty sure that myself and this other student that you were talking about we're not the only lives that you've transformed. Well, thank you. I mean, I like to think that I make an impact. You know, it's sort of like when I was in college, I had an advisor who did the same for me. And, you know, I think college is a really difficult time for a lot of people. You know, for most, you know, it's a time where you're trying to figure out who you are and how much of what you grew up with you want to keep and how much you want to toss away and coming into your own. And it's difficult. And, you know, I always said that I wanted to be able to be for my students what my advisor, Rick Hertz, was for me. And, you know, I like to think that I can do that. It's, you know, thank you for saying that. You know, sometimes it feels like sort of a thankless job, but... Yeah, I think that's exaggerating. It hardly, you know, sometimes it's exasperating, but it always feels really worth it. I still love it. You know, after all these years, I still love teaching. I do. I really do. You're an amazing teacher. Well, thank you. You know what I'm just so appreciating in this conversation as, you know, you, you two have had that one-on-one -on -one relationship, small in a classroom, probably in a dark room together. And then mm. we're, so we're talking about that level of detail and one-to-one -one connection. And then... Hearing your stories, you're also zooming the lens so far back that you have me imagining the entire globe. As I jot down the countries we're mentioning right now, I feel like we've traveled yeah. to pretty much everywhere around our world. And there's such richness in seeing that both and space of so small and so vast. And this is what stories do for us, right? Like, yeah. we often talk on our podcast about how stories shape relationships and how relationships shape stories. And I think in this conversation today, you've really helped us illustrate that. And that whole oh. idea of the universal is found in the specific. Yeah, it's true. Stories are what it's about. You know, it's about all those oral histories and stories being 
told and through generations and generations. And, you know, my father had some great stories, you know, stories about the war. And, you know, you just remember stuff. And it's such a wonderful way of passing down your richness, you know, really. And images are another way of storytelling. Yeah, they are. They really are. And I hope that the digital phase, I hope that these images last. You know, they're telling people now to to make prints because, you know, once you move on, no one's going to be going through your hard drives, you know. They will go through boxes of prints, but they're not going to go through your hard drives. So make sure that you make prints. I tell my students never to erase anything. You know, because you're going to want to look back on the images that you made early on to see the connections that you're going to make 20 years later. I mean, they're always there. You know, the connections are there. You just have to make sure you don't throw away the early stuff. So that because, you can rediscover you know, there are those things that I see. Yeah, you have to rediscover, you know, because when you're young, you feel like everything's throwaway. You know, you don't see the value in the stuff that you're doing when you're young. But when you have a perspective of 20, 30 years and you look back on it, you say, wow, look what I was doing then. And I didn't value it, but I can now see the thread. You know, that was like the beginning. That was the first knot that I made. You know, like when you're hemming your pants. Yeah. Like the first knot that you make, you know, and you got to keep that knot there. Otherwise, you know, the whole thing will fall apart. Make it possible to rediscover yourself. That's such a great way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, you got to keep that. Yeah, I'm writing that down. Yeah, I mean, and I'm a lifelong journal keeper, and I have kept every single oh, one wow, of them. Oh, me too. Yeah, and I wonder about, you know, there's those who say they have ritual burnings of their journal, and it's very oh, much really? part of their process. Yeah, it's a kind Woo! of a thing. It's part of their process of maybe especially in a very hard time of life of cataloging something they found really difficult. And to me, I always just said I, I never could. They all look, these little black books are all lined up in a cabinet, and heaven forbid, slash, I hope someday someone reads them. <laughs> yeah, somebody will. But has anyone ever read them that you didn't want to read them? Not that I know of. I've never experienced that violation. Your children yeah, well, are I, also not quite old enough yet. Yeah. I'm starting to get a little well, smarter about where I leave them. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good idea. I've had people read my journals that I didn't want mm. to read them, and that's been painful. You know, it's very interesting to read. The, I'm starting to reread parts of them, and I could have written them today. That's the oh, really scary. Read something from 30 years ago that you could have written. Well, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> then you think, oh my God, how much progress have I really made? <laughs> you know, you think you're all evolved, and then you read something that you wrote 30 years ago, and it's like, hmm. <laughs> or you say, my goodness, I was a wise child, and you just yes. embrace yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to write that down too. I was watching to embrace myself. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> this has just been so, so rich and so wonderful. Thank you so much, Janice. Janice's work was recently selected for an exhibition at Milk Gallery in New York City. She'll be there for the opening on Thursday, August 10th of 2017 from 6 to 8 p.m. Do check our show notes for a link to the gallery. And once again, today's episode is brought to you by Medify, a self-awareness app created by therapists that helps you to be your best self. 
You can download it for free today on both Apple and Android devices. One of the things that I love about Medify is just how accessible it is and how it really helps you to walk through the process of sitting with your feelings, especially if that's not something that you're really accustomed to doing or are comfortable doing for that matter. So many of my clients are starting to use Medify and bringing it back into sessions to share with me what they've been noticing, because that's really the work of all of this. It's noticing your feelings. So on the Medify app, you'll be able to either name a primary emotion or notice where you're feeling it in your body or make a little journal entry about that emotion. And it is, it's just another really great way to start noticing what you're feeling. Because truly, that's where the practice of being seen begins, seeing yourself. And so on that note of seeing yourself, Marisa and I are both pivoting and noticing different aspects of ourselves that we are leaning into. You can listen to episode 28 for more about that story. I'll be releasing another three episodes that Marisa and I have recorded together over the next two weeks. And then we'll follow that up with one more interview that I have recorded alone. Then I'll be taking a few weeks off from the podcast, probably two to four weeks off, and returning sometime in September of 2017 to begin season two with you. And I hope that you'll join me there as well. As always, for more great content, check out practiceofbeingseen.com and help to spread the word by subscribing, rating, and reviewing our podcast. Music written and performed by Christopher Ferris and produced at Kidneystone Studio.